good morning everybody. Welcome to this meeting at Calvary Evangelical Church, uh, being recorded in advance for the meeting on the 3rd of May. And uh, my name is Philip Wells, I work for the church as part of the eldership team. And uh, I'm leading this morning on the subject of uh, prayer to God for salvation. As you can see from the notice by my head uh, this evening, uh, my fellow Elder Ben all times is leading us in a consideration of Matthew 21 and uh, prayer meeting as usual and uh, no doubt Steve Ellicott will be sending out the invitations and updates in the usual way or the way that we've got used to by now. So um, I'm going to lead us off uh, today and these are the things that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be thinking about uh, the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a very important ingredient in what we're thinking about today. We've got songs and uh, a Bible reading, which is the same Bible reading actually that Julia kindly did for us last week. And I'm going to be talking about this uh, appeal to God for salvation. So last week was uh, we had quite a lot of things and uh, a little bit longer. Uh, maybe this one will turn out to be a bit shorter. Uh, we will see. So, again, welcome to everybody. If you're just dipping in, you're very welcome. If you're a regular, you're very welcome. And uh, let me pray. Lord, this is, as you see and as we know, an unusual way of meeting together. But nevertheless, will you please be glorified? Will you do the work of your Holy Spirit amongst us and for us and to us and with us as we meet like this? And help me as the speaker to speak rightly and to click all the right buttons. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 136 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures to forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. The psalm has as a refrain that the love of the Lord lasts forever. There's a special word for this sort of love, which some of you will know has said, a Hebrew word meaning steadfast love, promised love, the sort of love that you can depend upon. And uh, that's in Psalm 136. And this is... Uh, Isaac Watts's take on that psalm, and we're going to sing this. This is number 136 in our book. Thank you. 
apologies I had a couple of wrong button clicks there and the sound didn't work but I'm just going to press on because I'm not a professional broadcaster. We sang Psalm 136 give thanks to the God of gods his love endures forever and I'm going to lead us now in a prayer. Let us pray. We thank you merciful God that you are the God whose steadfast love endures forever. We come uh, as we are just now to worship you, to lift our hearts to you, to lift up your name and say how great you are. We are flesh and blood, you know our frame that we are dust, but you sit enthroned on high, you know all things, you rule all things. We praise you that it is your character to be righteous and just, to be compassionate and merciful, and to redeem your people with great mercy and compassion. So we come confessing our sins, all our sins of selfishness, of pride and arrogance, of unbelief, of uh, failure to acknowledge your total lordship. And we ask for the cleansing for, from our uncleanness and we pray that you will be merciful to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We come to thank you for your keeping of us, that uh, even now you have kept us safe and you have been patient with us. And we come to ask you for continued safekeeping. We ask you for our world, that you will show mercy at this present time. Lord, we know there are lessons to be learned. We pray that our world might not learn them the hard way. But we pray that uh, you will send your Holy Spirit to give a softening of hearts towards you, the creator of the ends of the earth. May men and women and boys and girls be drawn to you. Help us as your people to give a right and proper witness to your glorious name and not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ, but to confess him as we should. Hear our prayers for our world for our different nations and governments, for our families and loved ones, and indeed for us as a, a church, that you will be merciful to us. Keep us in good fellowship with one another. Keep us walking with you and enable us as you lead us to fulfil the mission for which you've sent us uh, here in this place. May we be found your servants doing your will and we ask our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. We have another song about the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end.
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We're going to have a, a reading now from Isaiah chapter 63. This is carrying on from where we were last week. And this is Julia reading. We particularly looked at chapter 63 verses 1 to 6 last week. And the reading carries on from that. It looks as like I've got the number wrong yet again. It's uh, 63 verse 7 through to 64 verse 12. And uh, thank you, Julia, for reading for us. Today's reading is taken from Isaiah 63, verse 7, up to 64, verse 12. I will tell of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people sons who will not be false to me, and so he became their saviour. In all their distress he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in open country, they did not stumble, and like cattle that go down to the plain, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people, to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard nor ear perceived no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. 
You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O look upon us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a desert. Even Zion is a desert and Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasure lies in ruins. After all this, O Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? It's a wonderful prayer, um, calling on God to save, to tear the heavens and come down, to do what only God can do in his grace and in his almightiness. We've got one more song about the faithfulness of God. It's this very um, familiar song. It uses the old-fashioned these and thous. Uh, but I'm sure we can work our way around that. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me.
Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We're going to think about this uh, passage of Scripture, which begins in chapter 63, verse 7. I will tell of the kindness, in other words, the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray first. Lord, help us to hear your word and help us to hear you speaking to us as a group, as a church, and as individuals. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible there, or if you can lay your hands on a Bible, please turn to Isaiah 63, verse 7. And these are the verses we're going to be thinking about. Johnny Cash has a song, um, I think my own personal Jesus, I think it's a satirical song because he's making fun of the thought of Jesus as my own personal saviour. Uh, Jesus as my own personal saviour is a catchphrase that um, Bible-believing, born-again, evangelical Christians sometimes use to mean what it is to be a Christian. Uh, it's not a quote from the Bible. The Bible doesn't use those words. And it, uh, it it can actually give the wrong idea. gives the idea that Johnny Cash was uh, making fun of, that uh, Jesus um, is not actually my personal genie uh, who gives me uh, three wishes and just is at my whim to do whatever I ask him to do. That's certainly not the way the Bible sees salvation. But this phrase does have a right understanding. It's a true insight into the deep biblical idea that people, human beings and God are capable of having a person-to-person -person relationship. In other words, human beings were made in the image of God to relate to him. He is a person and we are made people and we can have a person-to-person -person relationship with God. So that's distinct from a relationship with a set of rules. And it's distinct from simply moods and experiences which are impersonal. Uh, it's distinct from the works, the sort of relationship with a list that you tick the things off when you've done them, or a timesheet which you try to fill. Uh, that's not what the Bible talks about. But it is... Uh, a relationship which includes all the personal things like trust, dependability, love, uh, authority structures, submission, gratitude, meaningful actions. Perhaps you've had a birthday card sent to you or something like that. It's a meaningful action within a personal relationship. Uh, joy, things that make one happy things in the relationship that make one sad and uh, this sort of quality that we ascribe of being near, near to God, near to one another, being close. And uh, one of the particular ways that person-to-person -person relationships work is in the matter of conversation because it will not have escaped your attention that uh, alone amongst God's creatures we are capable of speech and that the God of the Bible is a speaking God and to have such conversation uh, in uh, 
Christian terms, uh, or indeed in, in any religion, is uh, comes under the heading of prayer. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, a prayer to God for salvation. And uh, this is the last section of Isaiah's great prophecy. Just in a nutshell, his heartfelt concern has been to see faithless Zion uh, transformed into faithful Zion. And uh, Isaiah lays hold of and describes for us that this is God's settled plan and purpose. He will have a city, a holy city, and it will not be an uninhabited city. But uh, human Zion has failed so deeply and chronically um, because it is human, because the people in it are human. And uh, the prophecy asks the question, how will this ever happen? How will God's purposes be fulfilled? And what will it look like? Uh, what will faithful Zion look like? And uh, we come more and more to the conclusion that it's not just old Zion with different bricks. It is a reimagining, if you like, a reconstituting, um, a rebuilding of this city. And the fulfilment of this mission might look different to one's earthly expectation. And indeed, that's what the New Testament tells us is exactly the way it's fulfilled. And then Isaiah's been asking this question, and who exactly will make this happen? And uh, as we've uh, been through, we've asked this question, who's going to do it? And uh, if you like to, one might summarise the book of Isaiah and say there are characters depicted in the three sections of Isaiah. In part one, we have the child king. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Well, that person, uh, the angel said at the birth in Bethlehem, is Jesus. Uh, he, will, he is this child that's born to us. We have in the middle part of uh, Isaiah this mysterious and uh, vivid depiction of the suffering servant who was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his uh, wounds he will justify many and uh, the New Testament is very clear that this suffering servant is none other than Jesus and as he goes to the cross and is crucified he is fulfilling exactly what these ancient scriptures have foretold and in this latter section that we're in at the moment where we have the character of the single-handed Lord um, undertaking salvation or the single-handed anointed undertaking salvation uh, this duality um, this person with two identities if you like uh, and Jesus says this is him as well there are multiple prophecies which are all fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth as he goes to the cross he goes to Gethsemane and prays and it's striking that everybody runs away and leaves him he does do it single-handedly and it is the claim of the passage that we read last time 63 verses 1 to 6 that there is one person who will wrap up history there is one person who will have the final word on everything and that person is Jesus he is the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end 
the Saviour and the Judge. And uh, we might add to that question what will be achieved. And as we come to this chapter, uh, there's an interesting emphasis on the idea of salvation. So 63 verse 8, so he became their Saviour. And uh, verse 9, the angel of his presence, and the word literally is face, the angel of his face saved them. And this great heartfelt question, 64 verse 5. You, we continue to sin against your ways. You were angry. How then can we be saved? This is the really deep, significant, important question. It's not the question, how can we be rich? That's a very superficial question. It doesn't help anybody, really. How can we be stress-free? Well, people in the West would love to be stress-free, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It tells us how to be saved. And uh, how can we be healthy? Again, a first-world problem. How can we be healthy? The Bible doesn't guarantee us health in this life, although it guarantees us health on God's timetable in the resurrection. But the question is, how can we be saved? And this section is a prayer how can we be saved? Will you reach down from heaven and save Almighty God? So let's um, divide it up into these sections. And they've got an R in them if you want to try and remember. Uh, the first one is remembering to God about God from 63.7 to about verse 14. Uh, the second R is return, asking for God to return to his people, around about verse 15 to 64.3. And then recognising the roots of the problem, not remembering, returning and recognising, 64 verse 4 to about verse 7. And then his people returning to God, 64.8 to 12. And I've copied that pretty much exactly from... For, from uh, David Jackman so um, credit to him for that and as we go through this although we're looking on the large scale of hundreds and probably thousands of years of history and miles and miles of geography these verses are actually very personal and uh, this teaches us that we're not to think of God's salvation as something outside of us and worked only on the large canvas of history but something which comes down to the soul of individual people what people have in their hearts and in particular the, the cries the prayers that individuals pray and I might just say to you this is a prayer for all of us uh, we pray along these lines, maybe not in the exact same detail, but this is prayer. And uh, maybe this prayer is special for you. I don't know. Are you a praying person? Could you say that your relationship with God is one of prayer? Uh, you speak to him one to one. Well, that's the uh, authentic experience of every true believer. And may it be so for you. So let's follow through these sections. 
First of all, remembering to God about God. So I'm looking at uh, 63 verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord. So I'll stop on the word tell because it is recount or something like uh, remember. And that idea of remembering uh, is uh, in a number of words. It's in verse 11. Then his people recalled the days of old. That's a remembering word. And it's in 64 verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. And there's something that is asked not to be remembered, which is in 64 verse 9. O Lord, do not remember our sins forever. So we've got quite a bit of remembering. And uh, here there is a remembering of the kindness of the Lord. Now, time and uh, skill don't uh, permit me to enlarge on this as it deserves to be. But what a wonderful character sketch of the God of Israel. Let me point out some of these rich key words. So verse 7 kindnesses. It's that word hesed put into the plural. Many acts of kindness. Any acts of steadfast love. Many acts of faithfulness. Uh, the word uh, in verse 7, I will tell of the many good things he has done for the house of Israel. The word tov. Um, good. The good things. God is a God who does good things. Not evil things, not malicious things, not horrible things, but the God who does praiseworthy things, the God who does admirable things. And then we have uh, the word compassion, verse 7, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. So kindness, the steadfast love word, is it? But the word compassion, rahan, uh, linked to the word for womb, it's the womb-like feeling of a mother for her child. Now, somebody on our house has been watching Call the Midwife, and it's a regular feature of that uh, Call the Midwife TV show that the mother so much loves the little baby uh, that she gives birth to. And uh, here God uh, is, is celebrated for his womb-like, mother-like, tender feelings towards his people. Verse 9. In their distress he too was distressed. A little bit of a tricky translation there, so I'm told, but let's take it at face value. Here is a God who cares about what happens to his people. He feels for his people. Uh, it's brought to its uh, high point in the priestly work of Jesus Christ, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, has been tempted like we are, so that he can give grace and mercy to help in our time of need. The God uh, whom we worship is not a God who doesn't know what it's like. In their distress, he too was distressed. And I move very swiftly on to verse 9, where in his love and mercy he redeemed them. Again, a very, very wonderful, rich word to redeem, to like a family member digging into his own pockets to help out somebody who's got in a family member who's got into hard times, somebody who shells out to deliver 
when you're in a hole. And this, it says, God plays the part of this kind uncle to his people. And then in that same verse, verse 9, what did God do? He lifted them. He carried them in all the days of old. You can, uh, you can see, you can imagine, I'm sure, uh, a, a father going out for a walk with a little toddler and the toddler can't walk as far as dad can and dad lifts the little one in his arms and carries the little one on his shoulders and this is characteristically what God does to his people he lifts them and carries them so here is uh, the good God and this is talking to God about himself reminding him reminding the listener this is who God is and he is so good and that's why these other verses jar so much verse 10 they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit if God wasn't a good God I suppose you could sort of be forgiven for not liking him and rebelling against him but his goodness is so kind we're very unkind and very ungrateful when we rebel against him and we say to him your way is not a good way I've got a better idea how very ungrateful of us to rebel against such a good God and how startling to find that this good God is so offended uh, so persistently offended so deeply offended that the only action uh, that is available to him is in verse 10 he turned and became their enemy he himself fought against them they wouldn't learn the easy way so they have to learn the hard way and here is remembering to God about God verse 11 more remembering then his people remembered the days of old now those days of old crop up here in quite a number of uh, guises is sometimes translated ancient days and the same word can mean everlasting it depends a bit on the context but uh, we have a lot of references to these days of old and uh, translated in different ways so verse 9 he carried them all the days of old those ancient days the days you look back upon and verse 11 his people recalled the days of old uh, those days in which God revealed himself as we shall see and verse 16 you O Lord are our father our redeemer from of old is your name it's not a new transient thing uh, you don't uh, reinvent yourself you are from everlasting to everlasting and 64 verse 4 since ancient times no one has heard same thing from since ancient times no one has heard and as I say this uh, word crops up and sometimes means everlasting and our song said as thou hast been thou forever wilt be God is not changeable he doesn't reinvent himself he doesn't let us down by saying one thing one day and a different thing the next he's a very great God is he not and this uh, teaches us that his character is embedded in history as a foundation story what is God like? Well, he's the sort of God who um, 
did things in the days of Moses and his people. He brought them through the sea uh, as a shepherd of his flock. And these are the lessons that refresh and strengthen um, God's people. Now, it's good to remember our own stories, but our own stories only have validity insofar as they fit in with the great stories, the stories of old. And uh, here they are depicted for us. What did God do of old? Well, he pulled his people out of water, verse 11. He brought them through the sea out of the waters. And uh, verse 12, he divided the waters before them. He brought them through that threatening, impossible, lethal barrier. He brings people out of deep waters. He's the shepherd of his flock, uh, the great shepherd. We uh, have uh, New Testament, well, we have, we have Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and we have New Testament testimony where Jesus says, I am, I am the good shepherd. Uh, God is the giver of the Spirit. In verse 10, they grieved the Holy Spirit. In verse 11, he set his Holy Spirit among them. Verse 14, they were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. So although there's a distinct teaching about the Spirit in the New Testament, the Spirit is not absent in the Old Testament. That there is a very generous gift of the Spirit in his characteristic work of being given, uh, of caring and of leading. And uh, God, in verse 13, is the leader. He leads them through the depths. And you get the horse and uh, the cattle being led and he is the rest giver. They were given rest, uh, verse 14, by the Spirit of the Lord, the sort of comforting rest. Uh, Jesus said, didn't he, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. Uh, Jesus wasn't speaking at random when he said that. He was making a very great claim to be the rest giver. And so we're reminding God about God or remembering who God is and all these characteristics and actions um, combine together to describe the Lord's name. Uh, uh, what name does he have? Well, in verse 12, he gains to himself an everlasting name. I know it says renown, but in the original it says name. And verse 14, you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And verse 16, um, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. So uh, this is the character of God. It's, if you like, his character reference. It's his CV. And if you're going for a job interview, they look and say, what sort of person is this? Can we trust them? Can we entrust them with these tasks? And God says, well, look at my CV my curriculum vitae, my record of achievement. Uh, and we're invited to look again at the things God has done, the name that he has carved out for himself and won for himself, and afresh to say, well, this is the God I'm depending on, this is the God I'm seeking. And are we not glad that this God is our God? Could we think of a better God to be our God? Can we think of a more trustworthy God to be our God? Um, 
isn't it a great thing to have this God as our God? So here was their first point, remembering to God about God, and this is surely the beginning of prayer. This is remembering who we're talking to. Uh, perhaps we stop and remind ourselves of who we're talking to before we actually talk to him, or perhaps as part of our praying we make it um, a, re a reflection on who God is and what he's done. But uh, the first thing then, remembering to God about God. Uh, and as we pray, we can ask him to do surely what is characteristic of himself. You're the great guide, guide me. You're the great provider, provide for me. You're the great shepherd, be my shepherd. And so on. Second thing, asking for God to return to his people. And I'm going to pick up on a word for return in a moment. It's in verse 17. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your paths? Return for the sake of your servants. Word shub, meaning to turn or return. And this is a prayer from God to God to do that. Now there are a number of requests in this prayer. In verse 15, um, we moved from reminding God about God or reminding ourselves about God to actually addressing God. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Look, see. Verse 17a, return, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. 64.1, oh, that you would tear heaven and come down. Come and do something. We can't do it, only you can do it. And it needs a mighty work of God. Come down from heaven and act. So there are these very strong requests of God. Um, what, what, when the prayer is answered, it, it might actually look quite down to earth, but the reality, the spiritual reality, is that God has rent the heavens and come down. And there are reasons uh, to, uh, to implore God. Verse 15, where are your zeal? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Where is your might? Why do you look like a God who is impotent and can do nothing? Uh, where are your tenderness and compassion? Why are they withheld? Will you not demonstrate that you are such a God of tenderness and compassion? Uh, verse 17. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you? Uh, now, I just need to say something about blame and responsibility. I don't think this verse is blaming God and saying oh, it's your fault we're sinners but it is asking God to take responsibility and there's a difference between responsibility and blame. For example you might ring the local council and ask them to tidy up the litter that's been strewn across the road. Uh, it's not the council's blame, they didn't strew the litter did they? But uh, it, it, it is genuinely possible to say well could you take responsibility for this? Could you tidy up the mess? And uh, you see, blame isn't the same as responsibility. And here, the prayer is, Lord, we've sinned, we've made the mess, but we had, we're, not, it's not, we're not capable of tidying it up. Please, could you take the responsibility to tidy this up? What would be the alternative? Well, if you don't do this, we will wander. Uh, why do you make us wander? 
And if you don't do this, our hearts will be hard. Please don't let our hearts get hard. Uh, don't let that be the case. And it's put in this very stark language, isn't it? Why, O oh Lord, you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not revere you. Don't let that happen. Don't let us go in that direction, please. The sin is our fault, but the salvation must be yours and it must be to your credit. You get the Apostle Paul picking up on that sort of uh, um, credit to God so that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Um, I'm quite uh, interested in these upcycling videos. Facebook keeps on telling me that I want to see them and I'm such a sucker I click on them and here's somebody upcycling a rusty old bicycle or a rusty old um, vintage lamp or something and making it wonderful, wonderfully new, cleaning it up. Oh, it's a, a wonder to behold uh, these people who do upcycling and mending broken stuff. And how much more glorious is the God who finds people like us in the gutter and takes us and renews us and refurbishes us and makes something beautiful out of the most unlikely material. Uh, it is to show the incomparable riches of his kindness, his grace, his creativity, his, his, the wonders of his love. Asking God to return to his people. And this request uh, in the, uh, chapter 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Do something really powerful. It's mountain-shaking. It's earthquaking when God acts in this way. It's radical and awesome. The mountains quake, verse, uh, 64 verse 1. It's like when water boils and fire ignites. And verse 2, the nations quake before you. And verse 3, you did awesome things we did not expect. You came down and the mountains trembled before you. But what, was this, what does this look like when God does this? I just pause to say, I think it was Martin Luther, or was it Augustine, who said that it takes more power to save a soul than to make a world. And when God saves a soul and comes down from heaven and saves a soul, there's more power there than to make a world. Well, that was Luther or Augustine's speculation, but you can see where he's going with that. And this is the sort of thing that the that um, Isaiah is saying because honestly this new thing that you need to do is going to be unparalleled since ancient times verse 4 no one has heard no ear has perceived no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him you're totally unparalleled in this you're totally unique you're totally in a class of your own when you do this amazing powerful thing from heaven and people hadn't seen anything like it or heard anything like it and quite remarkable the apostle paul should quote this exact verse he adds some other words to it as well but I, i'm in 1 corinthians 2 verse 8 where paul has been talking about the wisdom of the cross 
it doesn't look very wise and it doesn't look very strong but actually it's the wisest thing this world has ever seen and the most almighty thing that this world has ever seen and uh, the word about it is wise beyond any other wisdom and in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 he says none of the rulers of this this age understood it if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory but they did crucify him and what a thing that was as it is written no eye has seen no ear has heard nor mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him but God has revealed it to us by his spirit he says I think speaking about the cross um, that was a mighty act of power a mighty intervention God came down the mountains quaked well they did wasn't there was an earthquake at the cross of Christ wasn't there and uh, well we haven't seen the half of it yet but uh, the things that have been seen in Christ are God's amazing and awesome intervention and we're told there's more to come so let's move from um, that last section to recognising the roots of the problem we've talked about rem reminding God of God asking God to return and now recognising the roots of the problem and here again we have this reference to the absolutely intractable problem of human sin intractable as I understand it mean there's there's nothing that human beings can do about it it is just a, a problem that can't be solved and here in these uh, chapters we're looking at human nature in its raw state its untouched state and in 64 verse 6 he says all of us have become like one who is unclean uh, that is human nature in its raw natural state verse 6 all our righteous acts all our um can't think of the word um all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags it's a very polite translation because what it actually says is blood-stained garments and the blood referred to is uh, menstrual blood it says that's what our righteous deeds are like they're in your sight God unclean and repellent um, and that's human nature in its raw state and you might like to ponder the idea of history as one long experiment to see or indeed to to see whether human beings can generate their own salvation and to prove time and again that they can't so if you think of Moses and the Torah can the Torah save people well no it can't it's weakened nothing wrong with the Torah the law but people are weak and they can't keep it and you end up with well instructed sinners uh, you think of the monarchy and you could just in a very broad brush say well you had the monarchy and that failed too you had well organized sinners led by corrupt human beings and they couldn't solve the problem either and if you turn away from Israel to the Gentiles well they're just a total loss aren't they uh, with all their creativity and with all their human imagination they just make up gods that are a complete insult to the real God and they are lost sinners in their own way and you think of our western world with its technological advances and its do-it-yourself spirituality 
and our Western world is just full of lost sinners too. Uh, there is the intractable problem of human sin. And this, is, this too has got to be personal. We're not saying, okay, I agree with this as a, a thing in a textbook. I agree with this as a, an abstract proposition. We haven't got the point until we say, that's me. In my untouched state, in my raw state, as I am in myself, I am a lost sinner and I need a mighty, intervening, gracious Saviour. So we were remembering God, asking God to return and re recognising the roots and now uh, the roots being the root of the problem being sin and now we're going to look at people turning to God and we've got to verse 8. We were told no one calls on your name, no one strives to lay hold of you, you have made us waste away because of our sins. That's the root of the problem is our sin. But uh, turning to God in verse 64 verse 8 yet O Lord you are our father we are the clay you are the potter we are all the work of your hand do not be angry beyond measure O Lord do not remember our sins forever look upon us we pray for we are all your people and here's the prayer uh, it's put into the mouths uh, of uh, God's ancient people um, it would suit them uh, looking forward to exile it would suit them in their exile it would suit them coming back from exile but this uh, declaration of total dependence Lord you have to do it you are the potter we are the clay if you don't do it we're sunk it's total dependence and so total submission I suppose the clay says to the potter I'm in your hands make of me what you will and that's what a believer says isn't it make of my life whatever you will Make of my life whatever you will. If you want me to be single, mighty potter, I am the clay in your hand, then I shall be single. If you want me to be married, then in your hand I shall be married. If you want my life to be one of quiet duties, I will do the quiet duties. If you want me to have a very public profile, then let me do what you ask of me. If you want me to be here, you are the potter, I am the clay, I shall be here. If you want me to be somewhere far away, you are the potter, I am the clay, I shall be far away. If you want me to live a life of comfort, then you are the potter, I am the clay. Or if you want me to live a life which is right on the edge of coping, you are the potter, I am the clay. Um, whatever wiring you give me, uh, you know, we're all wired up differently, aren't we? Some of us are extroverts, some of us are introverts, some of us breeze through life, some of us are anxious at the fall of every leaf, um, some of us are optimists, some of us are pessimists, and we're wired up in certain ways, uh, and the Lord can take that wiring and make of it what he will. Uh, there's no use us wishing if we're introverts that we were extroverts or whatever, but we can be how we're wired up, in the Lord. You are the potter, I am the clay, make of me what you will. And there's a calling out for mercy here, isn't there? Um, 
Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Look upon us, we pray. After all this, will you hold back? Verse 12. It's an asking for mercy. Now, it's important to understand what mercy is. It's when you've got no negotiating power. So there's an example of uh, um, a mother in the Napoleonic Wars who went up to Napoleon. Her son had been deserting, had uh, abandoned his post as a soldier, and the mother cried to Napoleon. His, her son was due the death penalty, and she said to Napoleon, Oh, please show mercy on my son. And Napoleon said to the woman, uh, Well, give me one good reason why I should show mercy. And the woman said, If there was a reason, it wouldn't be mercy I was asking for. So that's what mercy is when you've got no negotiating power. And here are, uh, here are these people crying to God to show mercy. To show mercy. Do not deal with us as our sins deserve. Do not remember our sins, please. Verse 9. For reasons not in us, for reasons to be found elsewhere, do not remember our sins. Well, the people in this chapter um, could simply implore upon God's mercy and on his past track record. In the New Testament, we have a, a stronger reason to say we can see a place where sin was paid for, a place where you did not count people's sins against them, but counted them against Jesus. For his sake, do not count our sins against us. For his sake, show mercy to us. <clears throat> and we find an appealing for compassion. Look at the state of the people. Look at the state of us. Look at the state of the people who ought to reflect your presence and your glory. So we have it in verse 10, your sacred cities. Look, they should show your glory, but they're a desert. Even Zion is a desert, Jerusalem a desolation. The temple, the place which ought to be the number one place for people coming to meet God, a, a house of prayer for all nations. Um, it's been burned with fire, it's rubbish. It's failed, it isn't working. And uh, all that we treasured lies in ruins, verse 11. All these treasured, precious gifts to humanity uh, are, as it were, on the scrap heap. Now, certainly Israel can pray that with particular poignancy and no doubt still can. Uh, but the church too can pray this, can't it? It can take these prayers, the things that should show your glory, do not do so as, uh, as it should. There are portions of your church that completely miss the point and actually act as false prophets in a world that needs true prophecy. And none of us are going to claim that we reflect God's glory into this world as we should. Lord, have mercy. Lord, act. Lord, change things. Lord, uphold your cause and your kingdom. And surely we can pray this as individuals. Lord, in my life, I don't reflect you as I should. Look at my inconsistencies. Look at the, the sin that uh, clings to me. Uh, look at what goes on in my heart. I can't possibly be uh, 
self-righteous about that. I ask for mercy and I ask you to change me, to keep on changing me and to make me um, a temple, a member of a, a, a community that reflects you and so on. And here's this uh, question right at the end. After all this, O oh Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? So it ends up as a question. Uh, it ends up as a question. Well, we get an answer in chapter 65, and I think we're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to uh, get into that answer. Uh, but it is a prayer. Uh, it's a prayer for salvation. It's remembering God to God. It's asking God to return to his people. It's recognising the roots of the problem. And it is about people returning to God. And it ends up with this question. And I can say, where is the guarantee? Is there a guarantee of an answer? Uh, and I'm, I'm going to stick with the question. It, it remains a question. There isn't a guarantee in the sense there's a piece of magic here. You just say the right words and you're bound to get the answer. As I said right at the beginning, it's a person-to-person -person thing. Uh, you have to. You can't just read this off and say, OK, I've done it now. Um, it has to be in the heart. It has to be you doing business personally with the Lord. That's how you become a Christian. And of course, that's how we live the Christian life, isn't it? We don't just repeat things from a book. Um, and there you are, Bob's your uncle. Uh, it is a, a real person-to-person -person engagement. Remembering who God is, um, beseeching him, asking him for his favour, recognising the roots of our own problem and every day returning to God. Now, I say there's no guarantee, but I say there's very much encouragement because I don't think there's a single person in the history of the world who came truly to God and asked for mercy who was refused. Not a single one. And uh, so that, if that's you, you ask, um, seek and you will find, says God. Knock and the door will be opened. And uh, for those of us who have done that and who are living in the light of that, surely this is a daily encouragement for us <coughs> constantly to be turning back to God. Uh, the God who is, is the God who saves. And we're going to finish our time by having that song he is the God who saves come praise and glorify our God the father of our Lord in Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessing on us poured for pure and blameless in his sight he destined us to be and now we've been adopted through his son eternally Thank
kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us, the many good things he has done, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. I'll close with a prayer. Lord, help us to remember you and to, to live our lives not in ingratitude, but thanking you so much living for the praise of your glorious grace. So now may grace and mercy and peace be with each one of us, from God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, now and for evermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, no doubt see you in future. And uh, I will sign off now. It's uh, goodbye from me. <laughs>